welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Happy New Year! Two cases to discuss this week as the circuits ease into 2023. But before I get to them, I wanted to share a wonderful email that I received from a long-term attorney listener from South Florida explaining how she had used a multitude of cases discussed on the podcast to get an awesome win for her client. And respondents' councils have to celebrate the wins in immigration. To summarize, the attorney's client re-entered the U.S. without authorization while subject to an in absentia order of removal. DHS reinstated the removal order and the client passed his reasonable fear interview, but DHS was forced to withdraw the reinstatement and withholding only proceedings were terminated when the attorney figured out, based on podcast cases, that the client departed the U.S. before the in absentia removal order was issued. Then, when DHS sought to simply enforce the in absentia removal order, the attorney got the removal order, which had been issued by a court in the Second Circuit, reopened, recalling Rubicalva v. Garland from another circuit and episode 58 of the podcast, where the court had held, like many circuits have held, that the departure bar at 8 CFR section 1003.23b1 does not divest an IJ of jurisdiction to decide, even untimely, sua sponte motions to reopen contrary to the BIA's interpretation of that regulation in matter of Armendaris Mendez. But the attorney was in the Second Circuit, a circuit that apparently deferred to Armendaris Mendez. Well, the attorney relied on the Supreme Court's Kaiser framework to argue that regulatory deference has now changed since the Second Circuit deferred, and that the regulation is not, quote, genuinely ambiguous, end quote. The IJ sitting in New York agreed, granted the motion, and the client was released from detention the next day, just in time to ring in the new year with his family. Now I'm not going to lie, even having summarized that web of decisions on the podcast over the last few years, I'm not positive I could have pieced it all together so expertly, especially under such time deadlines. Well done, counsel. 
an awesome win for your client. So here are some more cases to be applied to future cases and future clients. And because the issue has not resolved as I write this sentence, if anyone wants to nominate me to be Speaker of the House, please know that I accept. Before getting to the cases, I wanted to talk a bit about Capital Good Fund. Millions of families seeking to improve their immigration status face financial barriers due to the high cost of legal services. Nonprofit Capital Good Fund is working to make these resources available to all, especially those who would not otherwise qualify for traditional loans. Certified CDFI Capital Good Fund is partnering with attorneys to provide the financial services that families need. They offer affordable financing with no closing fees or down payments for those working with attorneys to move their case forward and to get attorneys out of the accounts receivable business. To learn more about the program, email immigration at goodfund.us or call 866-584-3651 and tell them who sent you. The first of the two, Parash v. Garland, published by the Seventh Circuit on January 5th, 2023. This case is about credibility. Mr. Parash is from Bangladesh and testified that he joined the Jamaat-e-Islami party at the age of 15. His job was to recruit, quote, His asylum claim is premised on three alleged encounters with the opposing political party, the Awami League, in 2014, end quote. Those events included death threats, a beating that left him with a broken hand, and a kidnapping by Awami League members. After he escaped the kidnapping, he testified, Mr. Parash, quote, went to the police to report these three events. Upon hearing that Mr. Parash was attempting to file a complaint against the Awami League, the police threatened to kill him if he filed a report, end quote. He moved cities but didn't feel safe. He moved to Malaysia, but the Awami League threatened to kill his father and kill him while he was there. Then, Malaysia announced that it was kicking out temporary workers like Mr. Parash due to the COVID-19 pandemic. He came to the U.S. in March 2021. He testified that before he did, he received what he thought was a valid work permit. He presented that to officers at Chicago O'Hare Airport, who quickly saw that it was a fake. And as all immigration lawyers know anyway, an EAD card wouldn't permit travel or entry into the U.S., Pretty not great way to attempt immigration fraud, if indeed that was what Mr. Parash was attempting to do. In the airport, he was deemed credible and placed in removal proceedings to bring his asylum claim. The immigration judge, however, ultimately denied the claim, finding Mr. Parash not credible because, quote, one, Mr. Parash's use of a fraudulent work permit to enter the United States, and two, the immigration judge's impression that Mr. Parash was evasive when answering certain questions, end quote. The BIA cleaned it up a bit, but affirmed. And at the Seventh Circuit, the court held that, quote, although some of the IJ's conclusions lack evidentiary support, end quote, the IJ wasn't so wrong as to require a remand in this case. In fact, the BIA seems to have some pause, too, with the IJ's decision, having, quote, set aside, end quote, the IJ's decision to hold against Mr. Parash the use of the fraudulent work permit, and the IJ's reliance on, quote, unsupported personal opinion, end quote. That latter issue was mostly questioning, without evidence, whether the Jamaat would use a young person to recruit members, as Mr. Parash testified. 
Put another way, it seems like the Seventh Circuit and the BIA both agree that much of the IJ's credibility decision cannot be sustained. But the thing is, the IJ identified other bases to deny, and the BIA relied upon only those bases so as to clean up the whole credibility finding for petition for review. And that, said the Seventh Circuit, and quite frankly appellate law in many cases, is proper for the BIA to do if the record supports what the BIA did. The Seventh Circuit said that's what happened here. For example, Mr. Prush testified that he joined the Jamaat to promote democracy and that that's what he did. But an article that Mr. Prush himself submitted indicated that the Jamaat was hostile to democracy. Not only that, he appeared unfamiliar with recent high-profile Jamaat events. To the Seventh Circuit, the IJ and the BIA also properly provided little to no weight to Mr. Parash's corroborating evidence. For example, the letters from his parents that he submitted were identical and vague. The letter from his cousin he submitted lacked detail. And the letter from a private doctor who treated Mr. Parash in Bangladesh, perhaps understandably, doesn't say the reason that Mr. Parash was harmed doesn't necessarily make the doctor's note fraudulent or unreliable, but it also doesn't really support an argument that Mr. Parash is owed asylum, said the court. Therefore, and as always, a fairly nuanced affirmance of an adverse credibility finding by the agency. That tanks asylum and withholding of removal, and as the Seventh Circuit believes Mr. Parash waived a challenge to Convention Against Torture Protection, Mr. Parash lost his case. And that is Parash v. Garland. We conclude with Salazar v. Garland, published by the Fourth Circuit on January 3rd, 2023. This case is about crimes involving moral turpitude. Mr. Salazar is a 52-year-old man from Mexico who has lived in the U.S., it appears without authorization, for 30 years. In 2006, quote, seeking to refinance the mortgage on his Maryland residence, Mr. Salazar obtained a loan from Wells Fargo, completing an application using a social security number that he said was made up, end quote. Turns out that coincidentally, the number that he made up was actually a real social security number, and he was convicted in a bench trial of violating Virginia Code Annotated Section 18.2-186.3A2. That statute essentially criminalizes the use of the identity of another to obtain goods and services, quote, with the intent to defraud, end quote. DHS initiated removal proceedings, and Mr. Salazar applied for non-LPR cancellation of removal under 248B based on the hardship that his removal would cause his U.S. citizen family. But Mr. Salazar can't even apply for the relief of his conviction. It's the CIMT. That's what the non-LPR cancellation of removal statute says. The IJ and then the BIA held that the statute is categorically, that is always, a CIMT. It can't be violated in any non-terpitudinous way, said the IJ and the BIA, because it expressly requires, as an element to convict, an intent to defraud. And quite frankly, to the extent that there's any black-letter CIMT case law, it's that crimes that require an intent to defraud as an element are probably going to be CIMTs. Or as the Fourth Circuit put it here, quote, To meet the mens rea requirement, the crime must have, as an element, an intent to achieve an immoral result or willful disregard of an inherent and substantial risk that an immoral act will occur. 
To meet the actus reus requirement, the crime must violate not only the statute, but also independently violate a moral norm. End quote. There's your wordy definition of a CIMT. But the thing is this. During the pendency of the BIA appeal in this case, the Fourth Circuit published Nunez-Vasquez v. Barr, episode 12, quote, holding that convictions under a different subsection of the identity theft statute were not categorically crimes involving moral turpitude, end quote. Back-to-back weeks with episode 12 references. Weird. But anyway, definitely a helpful argument to have to challenge a CIMT finding with this statute here because the Fourth Circuit just held that a very similar statute was not a CIMT, at least not categorically. But it still didn't win the day in this case. Because, said the court, the subsection at issue in Nunez-Vasquez, subsection B1, has no intent to defraud requirement. Subsection A2, in contrast, the statute at issue in this case, does. Expressly. That's also why the BIA rejected the argument, by the way. Mr. Salazar didn't seek to avoid this, he couldn't. Instead, he argued that in practice, Virginia courts have interpreted the intent to defraud element in this statute, quote, as something more akin to intent to deceive, which involves an intent to merely lie to the victim, end quote. And he pointed to his own case as an example, a published state court appellate conviction. According to Mr. Salazar, he didn't intend to take someone else's identity, He just made up the social security number, and he intended to pay back the loan to the bank. All of this is the correct attempted application of the realistic probability test from the Supreme Court's Duenas-Alvarez decision. Even if the statute's text matches the definition of a removable offense, here a CIMT, a non-citizen can point to his or her own case and own conviction or another conviction to show that as applied realistically, a state achieves convictions with the statute in circumstances that don't match the definition of a removable offense. Here again, a CIMT. Problem is, to the court in the Fourth Circuit, quote, a borrower's intent to repay eventually is irrelevant to the question of guilt for fraud, end quote. And Mr. Salazar still lied to Wells Fargo with the intent of getting a loan through deception. Turpitudinous to the Fourth Circuit. In retort, Mr. Salazar, through counsel, relied on three BIA decisions from the 1960s. Still good law. Loved some of those Cold War-era BIA precedent. And he had a pretty good one, too, matter of Bailey, in which the BIA appears to have held that Kansas intended a fraud is not turpitudinous, at least in the 1960s, because it didn't require an intent to cheat. But to the Fourth Circuit, not so with Virginia's intended a fraud definition. Or at least there was no showing here that that was the case. Also, counsel relied on matter of Kinney, BIA precedent from 1964, where the BIA, quote, appeared to suggest that obtaining goods under false pretenses didn't involve moral turpitude because the buyer may also intend to pay for the goods, end quote. Excellent find, counsel. And I'm sure it helped craft your argument. But the Fourth Circuit isn't quite sure that matter of Kinney is good law anymore, and in any event, the statute at issue there didn't have an express intent to defraud requirement as an element. And even if, as Mr. Salazar argued, no one suffered or was at risk of suffering any harm, quote, the moral turpitude analysis looks to the defendant's culpable mental state and reprehensible conduct, 
not the fraud victim's subsequent conduct, end quote. That left one more argument for Mr. Salazar, that the BIA erred in deciding this case with one member rather than through a three-member panel. And true, there are seven circumstances under the regulations that will result in a three-member BIA review. And one of those is, quote, the need to resolve a complex, novel, unusual, or recurring issue of law or fact, end quote, under 8 CFR section 1003.1 E6 VII. But in shooting down this argument and to really dig in the loss, the Fourth Circuit states that, quote, the issue was not complex, novel, or unusual. It was squarely resolved by the BIA's precedent for crimes with intent to defraud as an element, end quote. Rough. Here's this. Seems like someone, either Mr. Salazar's counsel or the oil attorney, argued that the BIA's new streamlining regulation mooted the final argument about the three-member panel. But the Fourth Circuit was having none of that. Even if the immigration courts promulgated regulations that clarify that its, quote, internal agency directives are not intended to create any substantive or procedural rights to a particular form of BIA decision, end quote, and regulations use that language all the time, and even if those regulations are active, quote, an internal executive branch regulation cannot operate to strip Article Three courts of their statutorily granted jurisdiction, end quote. Restated, make your creative arguments in federal court councils, no matter what the regulations say. Finally, and I put this here because I have nowhere else to put it, it has nothing to do with the Fourth Circuit, at the very end of this week, the full en banc Fifth Circuit decided Cargill v. Garland. Has nothing to do with immigration, I was just tricked for the second time with this case by the Garland as the respondent. This case is about firearms. And I'm no expert, but it appears that the full Fifth Circuit is holding that the ATF's reclassification and therefore criminalization of bump stocks after the horrific Las Vegas massacre was illegal, and that only Congress can act to protect U.S. citizens, even ever so slightly, from gun violence. Paraphrasing that last part. Of course, this is an immigration podcast, so I bring up Cargill because it's a short week, and to point out the extensive discussion of the rule of lenity, including the many, many judges on the Fifth Circuit who appear ready to apply that doctrine forcefully when statutes are ambiguous and agencies seek to fill the gap in a way harmful to the individual. And that is an argument with heavy immigration implications. Good to know that so many Fifth Circuit judges are on board. And that is Salazar v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review or click on the link in the show notes. 
And if you're interested in an official Immigration Review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review.